Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to episode 122 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, the one, the only, Dan Feinberg. Hi, Dan. How are you doing, Leslie? I'm good. Kershaw beat the Astros in Houston. I'm pretty happy. Excellent. And it is uh, it is Memorial Day weekend, so uh, so I can work next Monday without publicist emails. So everything a little bit quieter. And the Friends reunion is here. Um, I, for one, am a giant Friends super fan, and I loved every second of it. And if you are a Friends fan as well, you are very much going to like our guest this week. We are joined by Ben Winston, who directed and shepherded the Friends reunion special on HBO Max. And it is an excellent interview. We might mention this as we get a little bit closer to that segment, but definitely we do spoil things about the uh, about the reunion. So maybe it's better to listen to after you've watched it. But, you know, whatever. There's there's a lot we didn't spoil. So but be aware, I guess. That's right. Yep. But it, it's well, well worth your time. So uh, what do you say we get into headlines, Dan? Absolutely. Up first, congratulations are due to Katherine Heigl, who has snapped her one-and-done streak after Netflix renewed Firefly Lane for a second season. Huzzah! In other news, Robin Thede's A Black Lady Sketch Show will return for a third season on HBO. In castings, Trevante Rhodes will play Mike Tyson in Hulu's Iron Mike limited series. Chris Noth is officially returning as Mr. Big on the Sex in the City update for HBO Max called And Just Like That, which I can think of a hundred better titles. Elsewhere, the flight attendant and Game of Thrones alum Michael Huseman has joined Apple's Mark Bull drama Echo. Joseph Gordon-Levitt will star in a Showtime drama about the founding of Uber and Shameless grad Jeremy Allen White will star in FX restaurant comedy pilot The Bear. On the development side, HBO Max is teaming up with Danny McBride for a Garbage Pail Kids animated series. Leslie, did you collect Garbage Pail Kids cards? I sure as hell did. They were my gateway to baseball cards. But yeah, I still have a bunch. I believe that probably for a, a whole generation, they were a gateway to a general type of humor that many of us share, and it will be interesting to see how it converts to a new generation. Yes. In other news, WandaVision head writer Jack Schaefer has signed a rich three-year overall deal with Marvel and Disney's 20th TV. And Lee Daniels has also inked a new overall deal with 20th, for whom he's also producing The Wonder Years and Our Kind of People next season. 
And a reminder, you can go back and listen to Jack Schaefer's comments about a potential second season of WandaVision from our interview with her back in episode 104 from January. Also, as we hinted about in several recent episodes, the Kelly Clarkson show will take over Ellen's time slot on NBC affiliates in fall 2022. And wrapping up this week's headlines, Bull showrunner Glenn Gordon Karen has been dropped from the CBS series following a workplace investigation into allegations he created a toxic culture on the set of the Michael Weatherly drama. If that sounds familiar to you, that's the same show that resulted in a massive cash settlement to Eliza Dushku uh, following similar allegations against Weatherly and the, sh- the now ousted showrunner. And once again, we ask the question, how much money could CBS be making off of Bull that it continues to be of value to keep that show on the network? The world may never know. And this just in, as we record, um, it's worth noting, Julie McNamara, the head of originals for Paramount Plus, who launched CBS All Access with shows like The, The Good Fight and Star Trek Discovery, has opted to leave the streamer. A replacement has yet to be named. And with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off this week, it's another mega merger. Mega merger. (laughs) It's official. Amazon has bought MGM in a deal worth $8.45 billion in a bid to better compete in the streaming wars. This is going to be a very similar topic to our conversation about the Warner Brothers spin-off thingy with Discovery last week, as we see not necessarily contraction in the streaming world, but we see basically people preparing for the future of the streaming wars. So, Leslie, break down what this deal entails. Yeah, basically, this is a, a copy and paste of of last week's segment, only with two different companies. So uh, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos said this week that Amazon plans to reimagine and develop MGM's IP for the 21st century. So what does Amazon get for their $8.45 billion? Well, a ton of IP and library properties. James Bond, Rocky and Creed, Vikings, Survivor, Silence of the Lambs, The Handmaid's Tale, Fargo, and The Apprentice, including possibly Mark Burnett's sought-after Trump tapes. And as we said last week when we were talking about the Discovery and Warner Media deal, this is about scale. And these companies, Amazon needs to bulk up. Just as Disney did when they bought Fox a couple of years ago, this is about bulking up and preparing for a bigger future. So we know everyone is all about streaming. We saw all of the executive moves last year as all these big conglomerates restructured to prioritize streaming. And now you're seeing them look into their libraries and say, yeah, we don't have enough, which is jarring to think about when you have a company like Amazon that's like, okay, we're coming into this. We're going to start getting into originals. And, you know, Peter, the great Peter Kafka at at Rico tweeted this week, something that, that really stuck out to me. Netflix and Amazon both started making their own shows and movies in 2013. One of them figured it out, and the other is paying nearly $9 billion for James Bond. So that really, to me, sums up the deal really well, because you're seeing Amazon saying, we just paid $250 million for Lord of the Rings, and that's one property. So we need more. We need more. So is there going to be a James Bond TV series? Probably at some point. 
you know, will Amazon continue to be an arms dealer and sell other originals like The Handmaid's Tale to Hulu and Fargo to FX? Or could they bring those home at some point? You know, that's a great question. The other piece is what happens to all the MGM assets? They have a premium cable network called Epics that's been doing pretty well, Dan. I think I know you're a fan of some of their shows. And an executive in Michael Wright who just got promoted to replace Steve Stark, who left basically because Mark Burnett continued to to muddle in, in the scripted division. And yeah, then that's the next question of, well, who's going to run the joint? Does Jen Salky at Amazon, will she run oversee film and TV? What does that mean for Mark Burnett? They know each other. You know, Jen Salky, when, when she was at NBC, worked with Mark Burnett on The Voice. They have a relationship, but he is, Burnett has continued to I- expand his purview at MGM. Obviously, it, it forced someone like Steve, the great Steve Stark to leave. But these are all big questions that remain to be seen. But the the answer in short is, you know, as I say, you know, we've been saying in this on this show for 122 episodes now, everything comes down to money and scale and IP. So you need big titles to, to broaden out. You look at how Disney did this with Marvel and the acquisitions like, of, you know, not, not just Marvel, but Pixar and everything else. And you're bulking up, right? This is the same thing. First of all, you are definitely confusing me with our former colleague, uh, Tim Goodman, who was a large fan of most things epics. I am not not a fan of things epics, but I wouldn't describe myself as a particular epics partisan. I quite literally could not tell you if I actually even have epics, but I've definitely watched a couple screeners for epic shows. Um I I feel as if the the nine billion dollars for James Bond thing, which is a joke I saw many people making yesterday and also a serious thing that I saw many kind of more fanboy online sites taking seriously. Did, you know, did Amazon overpay for James Bond? Well, yes, if what they were getting was really nine billion dollars for James Bond. Yes, they did overpay. There's a lot more than that. It is a a massive film library. It is a large television library. And it was sort of funny seeing or rather hearing the various statements from Amazon people where they were like, yes, there's so much IP uh, and we're going to develop it all for the new millennium, which is sort of like, we don't really know what we're going to develop, but we know that we just acquired 4,000 things. Something has to be redevelopable. It's it's where we are, and the library is an important thing. There's honestly, there's value from Amazon's perspective in keeping other people from getting the library. So if something like a, uh, you know, if something like an Apple has been out there this entire time without a library, and everyone's like, ooh, they got great shows, but, you know, do they have enough that I really want to subscribe? Well, from Amazon's perspective, locking down a very large and lucrative library is of great value to them. So keeping it from the other guy. Also, if you're Jeff Bezos and your net worth is $188 billion at last count, I believe, what on earth is an $8.45 billion deal? <laughs> I mean, like that, that is nothing to him. It's so, a drop in the bucket, yeah. So for him, if that represents screwing Apple on a library deal, it's worth it. If it represents just getting James Bond, maybe it's even worth it. I don't know if he really likes James Bond and this is pocket change for him. Why the bleep not? If there is other stuff in the library that he's able to develop and get value out of, fine. If this is all about getting the Trump tapes that don't exist. And that to me is the dumbest angle of this entire 
thing where Jeff Bezos did not pay eight point five four five billion dollars to find a tape of Donald Trump saying the N word, both because he did not do it. I mean that Jeff Bezos. I'm positive Donald Trump has at some point. Uh, that is not why Jeff Bezos did this, but also it would make no difference to anybody in the entire world if we found that tape. It would not change the 30% of people who still want that person to run for president next year. So anyway, that is not why he did this. So yeah, it's to me, it's, it's interesting because basically it's everybody shoring up their foundations. It's everybody saying when it gets to be two years from now, we assume Netflix will still be here. Who else will still be here? Who else will have the resources to stand in position? Who will have the position where they have the flexibility to go back and forth with theatrical if that's what they want? So, you know, this gives Amazon some more flexibility there. Th there are many reasons why this is a thing that Amazon felt was of value, but $8.45 is both a tremendous amount, but it's almost only a third of what the value of the Warner Brothers thingy two weeks ago was. So, you know, it's small potatoes compared to that. I heard also lots of people speculating on on regulatory impacts and whether this might not clear. You know, looking at the things that have cleared in the past two or three years, regardless of whether this administration is different from that administration, this there's no reason why this wouldn't clear that I understand. I am not a business type man person. So I don't know. Anyway, it's interesting. That's that's all. That's all I have on this is I can see lots of reasons why this is the thing that Amazon wanted to do. And the primary reason is they want to still be here in five years. And that's all anybody in the, the biz wants. <laughs> yeah. And the other piece of it, too, you know, the more I think about it, um, you know, I, I always kind of think, you know, look at how Netflix launched, right? They they le basically leased all of these uh, scripted shows uh, from other studios and put them on DVDs by mail or right or having the library like a like a friend's, for example, right, where you pay a, a fee to to lease the show for a certain amount of years. So what if this is Amazon saying we're going to take all these MGM assets and we're going to put them on our platform and here's our library now? That's huge. That's absolutely huge. So, yeah. And so looking at all the kind of the MGM TV shows, most of them currently have other deals. But I don't know if, you know, 15 years or 20 years down the road, that doesn't mean that a Fargo doesn't migrate over as part of the library on Amazon or, a you know, Handmaid's Tale or or whatever. It's sort of these things have the potential to do this, obviously. Yeah. Or know. Survivor. Or Survivor. And, and that's that's where it becomes really con confusing and where it will continue to confuse users and customers for many moons to come where, oh my goodness, why on earth is Survivor suddenly making it to Amazon after having been on several other services previously? What's happening? Well, you know, all comes down to who produced it and who has some sort of co-ownership versus who is leasing it. Anyway, it's all, it's, it's all just about the library and there's a lot of value to a library. Yep. Well, Dan, I don't have a transition. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, Leslie, you just don't have a transition. But, I don't. But last week, we talked a lot about the upfronts as it related to basically the big four networks. But we mentioned that the CW had not really participated in the big upfronts week. So up second this week. Number two. 
The CW revealed its series pickups and its fall schedule, and effectively, finally, wrapped up the broadcast portion of the Upfront's cash grab. And for the second year in a row, the CW opted not to do a formal presentation. They just did a call with executives with reporters. So, Leslie, you were on that call, I believe. I certainly was not. What came up at that call, and what are some big takeaways from this week's CW News? Well, let's start with the news. So CW picked up two new series, the All-American spinoff called Homecoming and Ava DuVernay's DC Comics drama Naomi. Homecoming and Naomi will join the 4400 reboot, which was picked up straight to series a few months ago. One big thing missing from the CW's pickups and perhaps one of the the season's biggest surprises was Powerpuff, uh, the Powerpuff Girls live action update from Greg Berlanti and Diablo Cody, which the CW will redevelop after passing on the pilot. So the entire cast will return. The same create writers and producers will come back. They're going to take another stab as as Mark Pedowitz said that the the pilot that they saw this time came in a little bit too campy. Um also still in consideration is the Nancy Drew spinoff, Tom Swift, and the CW has officially passed on Black Lightning offshoot Painkiller and pilot Our Ladies of Brooklyn. Both of those will be shopped uh, with HBO Max and Paramount Plus possible homes for them, respectively. As for the CW schedule, which will expand to include Saturdays for the first time in the network's history, Pedowitz said that they will have unscripted programming on both Saturdays and Sundays. That's a, the latter is a departure. They had scripted series there last season. And basically the reason for that is Pedowitz explained it is because of the pandemic. So CW, if you remember, opted to not start its fall season in its traditional October window, but instead pushed everything to January. That means a lot of shows started production late, which means they run later into the season before they wrap. So one good example of that is Riverdale. That show will not wrap filming its current season until late June or July, and a return to production won't be until September, which would make an early October debut all but impossible. So this is a ripple effect, and this is one of the things that Petto would stress a lot during his time with reporters. And he said that they really hope to get back on a regular schedule, on their regular schedule, sometime in 2022. So it just means everything got started a little bit later, everything finishes later, and it's it's all cyclical. So we're still waiting to find out how many episodes a lot of these shows will have next season. Um, they've got a ton of stuff on the bench. I believe it's seven scripted series that they're holding for midseason. Expect to see the Sunday li- unscripted lineup eventually shift over to scripted when some of those shows are ready. They did say that The Flash and and Riverdale, when they finally do premiere, probably around November, would launch with five straight episodes that are going to be kind of eventized. So expect, you know, crossover type stuff from The Flash with other DC heroes, for example. So that's the big takeaway from the CW. Um couple other, you know, highlights. The holiday business continues to be a huge thing. And now the CW is getting into that with an original movie called The Walton's Homecoming, as well as a pair of animated specials focused on Scooby-Doo and Legends of Tomorrow favorite Bebo. So holiday movies, not a whole lot of scripted in the fall. Eventize when it does come back and probably look for the CW to get back to business as usual sometime in 2022. Those are the big takeaways, Dan. So. You you had me at Bebo animated special, but <laughs> I am sort of at a loss to figure out what the portion of the CW audience is that is really eager for a holiday special reuniting the Waltons or something. I mean, God, I guess 
guess maybe they're targeting the grandparents of the CW's target demographic. I great grandparents at this point. I don't even know. It's it's a little bit confusing. Or- or as exposing IP to a new audience and hoping that it catches on and can ignite some interest in that library, which is pretty much the, the function of any reboot these days. <sighs> I don't know. It's confusing to me. I just don't know what the Waltons as a brand means to people in 2021. But again, it does mean something to a generation. It's just not necessarily the generation the CW typically targets. So... Anyway, good for the CW, expanding, shaking up the schedule, doing those CW things. Huzzah. Huzzah. Number three. Up third, let's go to the mailbag. And reminder, if you have questions that you would like to hear Dan and I discuss on the podcast, please email us at TV's Top 5. That's TV's Top 5, the number 5, at THR.com. Our first question comes from Alex, who emails, and this ties into our number one story of the week, with HBO Max and Discovery merging and Amazon's MGM acquisition. I'm curious what you think the next domino to fall will be. I've heard rumors that Apple wants a content library to bolster their streaming service and that CBS, Viacom, and NBC Universal might merge. Would that even be legal? We also have smaller content libraries like AMC Networks, which do not seem long for this world. If you had to put money on the next merger acquisition, Leslie, what would you choose? Oh, God. You know, this is not my central beat. Uh, we have the great Alex Weprin um, on this beat at THR. He's a must follow on Twitter if you're interested in this kind of stuff and who isn't at this point. But Alex, you listed all of the the target. So there, you know, Apple had been rumored to kick the tires on MGM for some time. MGM had been for sale for years. The, the rumors about Viacom and Comcast potentially combining persist. AMC has got to be a target, you know, like they have a couple of very niche streaming services. They have some big, important library, although Mad Men is obviously not something that they own. That's Lionsgate. And then and then you've got Lionsgate still. They're starting to figure it out with, with you know, how they're using stars to promote their library and content since that deal closed a few years ago. But yeah, I, you know, there's definitely going to be more this year, I think. And, you know, just reading the tea leaves and looking at how things have been going on, you know, but as for what's next, I don't know. I really don't, but but it's definitely coming because when you look at at a company like Amazon that says we need we need scale and Warner Media, well that's AT&T getting out of it, but Discovery seeing an opportunity to really bulk up and 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 position themselves as a top media brand going forward, there there have to be more. You know, there absolutely have to be. And it wouldn't surprise me to see you know some kind of combination with Viacom and Comcast, but you know, NBC Universal is just getting started with Peacock and its new executive regime. So give them some time. So I'm very curious to see what what comes from that. And then what uh, Viacom CBS does to replace Julie McNamara and where she goes. She's very talented, built up a great roster there, managed to expand the, the, the platform once Viacom came in and said this service needs to be reflective of all of our assets. She's very smart, very well liked by talent. Yeah, it, it, lots. There, there's more coming, basically. I, I mentioned that I didn't anticipate that there would be permanent regulatory hurdles to MGM and Amazon, but I, I definitely have to feel as if a a CBS Viacom, Comcast, NBC Universal, whatever, that would probably be something that would get in the way of <laughs> that someone would scratch their heads and say, do we really want to allow that? But we're at a point at which if you're not 
one of the five biggest companies, probably you are a candidate to be bought up by one of the five biggest candidates. We are we are moving towards not monopoly, because if there are five of them, it's a quintopoly. Is that a thing? I mean, I guess it could be. A duopoly is too, so quintopoly makes as much sense as anything. Uh, yeah, so basically, the big fish are going to keep eating the little fish, but they're also eating the very mi uh, medium-sized fish and probably the slightly less big but still fairly large fish. So, yeah, there, there will be more of this. <laughs> yeah, and then you mentioned, you know, Apple and Netflix. That, that's been rumored for a long time, too. So who knows? Uh, our next question comes from Tony, who writes... Uh, aside from screeners, what paid streaming services do we do we both have, and are they all subsidized by THR, or maybe we pay for them and count them as tax write-offs? Dan, a little peek inside uh, how things work here. Yes, behind the sausage factory or something to that effect. Um, the simple first answer is nothing is subsidized by THR. That is that is an answer. Um, a lot of the things in situations in which. I would be idolizing my tax returns. I would definitely be writing things off. Um, very Some of the things, there are press versions of the various sites. In most cases, though, I'm just paying for them. Uh, you know, I, and I'm and not just paying for them. I'm paying for the commercial-free versions because I am really, really impatient and don't want to welcome... Uh, paying. <laughs> At this point, the only thing that I don't have a pay version for uh, that, and I don't have a commercial free version for is, is Peacock. That is the one where I, I still haven't bought in, but I have, I have commercial free CBS All Access Paramount Plus. I have commercial free Hulu. I of course have, um, you know, Amazon and Netflix and HBO Max because I'm an HBO subscriber via cable because I have cable and almost all the stations, though I continue to mention, I'm really not sure if I have epics. <laughs> that, that remains one of the very, very few genuine mysteries to me. I don't know if my cable package, which is not cheap, includes epics. But yeah, just, just about everything. Um, you know, there, there are definitely a lot of the, you know, increasingly large number of middle range services that I probably don't have because the originals are so few that I get screeners for them, so I don't have AMC Now or whatever the AMC uh, streaming OTT platform is. I, I don't have that. Um, I don't have one or two other things, but really, for the most part, I have them and I pay for them. And some of them are are worth it. I will I will always say that you know I, I get my money's worth comfortably out of Hulu. I get my money's worth easily. Out of HBO Max, uh, Amazon, of course, I get my money's worth because we were just in a global pandemic. And like everybody else, I gave them too much of my money to bring me things. And so the free shipping paid for it. And then you get Underground Railroad. So, you know, great. Um, yeah, most the one the one at this point that is really tough for me to say that I'm truly getting my money's worth out of it is is Paramount Plus. I, you know, I'm always happy to have good wife, good fight, whatever, and I use it as a way of catching up on whichever CBS comedies I don't want to watch commercials in, so I watch me some Young Sheldon on uh, on Paramount+. Plus. I, I watch Mom on Paramount+. Plus. I watch Be Positive on Paramount+. Plus. Um, but in terms of sort of the overall value at this moment, I don't feel like I'm getting value out of it. Something like Apple 
TV Plus, they've got enough programming that I really do feel as if it's worth it, but only because they've kept the price point on that one significantly low. If, if at a certain point Apple TV Plus said we're raising to $9.99 a month, it would not be worth that. So, but also, you know, I'm an Apple product, not so much addict, but, you know, all of my stuff is Apple. So, you know, don't want to say it out loud because the minute you say out loud that an Apple product might break, it senses that and a, you know, circuit goes on the fritz and you have to buy a new one. So I'm a little nervous about saying that. Uh, but yeah, so, so that one, that's one where I do currently feel like I'm getting my money's worth because they kept the price point low. The minute they blow that, that's when I start going, gee, you have no library. So it's not helpful to me. Um, yeah. So that, that would be yeah, what I Speaking say. of library, that's, that's, you know, go, goes back to the, the first mailbag question too, is who's got the best library. And, and that's, and that's where HBO max to me is always so useful. There, there is no point at which I can't go into the HBO max movie library and find something that I want to watch. They have an assortment of stuff that is just tremendous. And, you know, there, there are always the debates. Do they have it in 4k? Do they, you know, but there was the whole Roku thing for a while, all of that. HBO max does contribute to my life the things that I need when I actually have moments that I'm able to look for something to kill. And I appreciate that. Amazon sometimes has, you know, I watch Spontaneous on Amazon about people around Catherine Langford exploding. It was amusing. Uh, <laughs> Netflix, I can sometimes often find something I want to watch more frequently, kind of weird, quirky documentary type stuff uh, than big films. But, you know, yeah. So the the basic answer to the question is I have nearly everything. I pay for nearly everything. And that's just the way it is. How about you, Leslie? Um, we have a family Netflix account that we we pay into. Um, I think we I've been pretty open that about Disney Plus when that launched and they offered the, you know, the three year deal. We signed up for that right away because in case I haven't mentioned this a hundred times already, I'm married to a Marvel and Disney nerd. Um yeah, and we have pretty much everything. Um, I don't. I don't think I've ever actually used um, Paramount Plus, even when it was CBS All Access, for more than anything for research to see what was streaming where and how much of something was available. When I've been writing about something else, um, I've not gone on to Peacock except for this that same kind of function. Most of the stuff, like you know, when we you know we had you know some Peacock showrunners in, I watch the stuff when it gets sent out on screeners, and then. Very rarely do I go back in and and watch it again. I will be uh, rewatching Girls Five Eva this this weekend at some point with family, so uh, that'll probably be my first time actually using the Peacock platform specifically. So we're very lucky to get all all the screeners, and they're very helpful, obviously, to our jobs. But uh, yeah, I pay for most everything. And the peak you you will discover the Peacock user interface is not great, and you can then hold off because you would describe discover that the Paramount Plus user interface is just, just horrible. It's about as bad as it gets. But that would be the answer to a entirely different mailbag question that we didn't get. Uh, let's go on to our next question. Leslie likes to remind people about Kevin Riley and his pilot season is dead proclamation. And so Matt writes, Leslie's recent reminder about Kevin Riley and his comments about pilot season, what do you see in the future? For Kevin Riley, will he get another run at a leadership post of a media company? Uh, great question. I don't have the answer. I just have an opinion. You know, 
Kevin Riley and Bob Greenblatt are, are both sitting at home counting, you know, counting their money that they got as part of the payout when they were pushed out early on in their tenures at Warner Media um, after uh, Jason Kalar came in. And by the way, Kalar told uh, staff today that he will remain with, with Warner Media through 2022, which is kind of insane considering he was effectively fired and as as part of the merger. But yeah, I think I think both of those guys are great executives and you know, Riley, you know, to me it you know has always been at the forefront of where the industry is going. He's very smart. Um you know, Netflix is still looking for a head of US. That's been an open position for now for a quite a long time now, dating back to last year after Bella reorganized and yeah, that's that's Riley would be great, but the bigger question is, will will Bella go to look at a former competitor in, in that slot? You know, and that's part of the reason I think that they've had trouble uh, filling that void. Um, so yeah, I think you know I I wouldn't be surprised if Kevin Riley didn't want to be someone's number two, and the same with Greenblatt. If you remember Gary Newman, um, he was the guy who was kind of left out in the cold in the Fox Disney deal. Dana Walden obviously running, you know, very high up on at, at the Disney TV side and her f- longtime partner dating back to when they both ran 20th TV and when they both ran Fox, the broadcast network. Newman's, you know, now looking, you know, he's a consultant. So that could be the, the way that you see someone like Riley go um, or even Greenblatt, you know, or. Who knows? Eventually, there's going to be some some kind of other mega merger, and maybe they'll need to bring in seasoned executives who know what they're they're doing in the TV landscape. So, you know, they have experience that's that a lot of these tech companies didn't, and I think that's one of the reasons that you you're seeing uh, these streaming services being run by veterans of the broadcast system, right? Jen Salky at Amazon, Bella at, at Netflix, and even Craig at Hulu and ABC now. Same thing. So, yeah, I think I think you know Kevin's a talented executive and always kind of been at the forefront of where the industry is going. And I wouldn't be surprised to see him to see him launch his own thing. Now, it should be quickly noted that Robert Greenblatt isn't just sitting at home counting his money. He was announced as an executive producer on uh, NBC's Live Annie when that was announced a week or two ago. So he is continuing his his dream of bringing uh, live musicals to to television. So we thank you for that, Robert Greenblatt. Yes, and still involved in Broadway, I'm sure. And a reminder, if you have questions you'd like to hear us discuss on a future mailbag segment, email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's the number five. Up next is our showrunner spotlight, only this week it's not so much a showrunner, it's more a director. Uh, To remind you, this week's conversation is about the Friends reunion special, which has premiered on HBO Max, and... We're going to spoil some things, so it's definitely a behind-the-scenes depiction of the special, but if you want things unspoiled, maybe come back and check this out after you've watched the special. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Number four. So if you're a Friends diehard, as I said in our opening remarks, this week you're going to love this. So we're joined by Ben Winston, the producer and director of the Friends reunion, which bowed May 27th on HBO Max. 
In addition to coming up with the idea and pitching the reunion special, Winston is also an executive producer of The Late Late Show with James Corden on CBS and recently produced the Grammys. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Thanks for having me. I'm very honored to be here chatting to you two. Thank you. So let's start at the very beginning when we see everyone first arriving on the set. How much was the cast given the topics and and the kind of the, the the run of show and approved topics to discuss when they arrived on set and you know how involved were they were the question i have basically a hundred questions for you so basically how much did the cast know what they were walking into and how much were they involved in the planning of how this was executed so not not they were i mean they were they were sort of very involved in that they were they were very involved in that they were that they were exec producers on the show and they were involved in the big, larger scheme of things. Like, I, you know, I would pitch them, I would like to do the quiz, or I would like to do a table read, or Lisa, would you sing with Gaga? But like the questions that I would ask them on camera were not in any way like vetted in advance or anything like that. There was a real trust between the six of them and me uh, in that they wouldn't, they wouldn't have wanted to know what they were going to be asked. It would have been a, a, a it, it wasn't like a talk show appearance. It was more like we're making this film together. Um, and I would just throw stuff out to them. And, and the stuff I would throw out to them, especially the documentary side of it was more to evoke discussion. So I knew where I wanted them to go in a way, but I would like throw a topic out there and I'd sort of then exit and, and sort of let them just sort of take it away because the six of them discussing it with each other was the thing that I sort of really wanted to see. Um, as for them, when they actually walked on set, that was one moment that I was very specific with them about. I was sort of really surprised because they're such a close unit. They're so tight with each other. There is so much love between the six of them. I've never really seen anything like it. Um, but they'd only been in a room together once in 17 years. They've seen each other in twos and threes and fours and even fives, but six of them together once in 17 years. So I was very specific about that morning on set because we didn't start filming until like 1 p.m. That moment where David walks on first is around 1 p.m. And I really begged them. I said, please don't go and hang out with each other before you come on set. I really, really want you to stay separately. And they would mock me mercilessly going, oh, well, we all woke up in bed together. Or, well, actually, Matt, you're picking me up this morning. Can you bring me a latte? And like just winding me up. But I really didn't want them to because even though they didn't realize, they were like, why do you care? It'd be fine. It'll be, we're, it'll be great. I was like, no, no, there is still something about that moment when the six of you will be together on that set for the first time that I just don't want to have ruined by you popping into each other's, you know, makeup chairs. And so, uh, and I think that that impact that they had, that emotional like rawness that you see when they see each other in that environment was really impactful because it was very true to the moment. Well, I need to get a clarification because I was wondering this watching it as well. When you say just once in 17 years, is this the once or was there a previous time? And it's never explained what the previous time was. So, yeah, there was a dinner at Jen's house. Yeah, there was like some famous Instagram posts from oh, like no, a few years. An, yeah, although right. that was an Instagram post that she posted many years after the photo was taken. So people, so she joined Instagram and broke Instagram for the day with a post of the six of them together. But that was taken, I think, in 2015 at a dinner that they all had. But she just posted it as her first post on Instagram. Um, but yeah, that was the only time they'd been together. Six. But like I say, they'd all seen each other loads. It's just, it's what's really funny, even for me, 
I'll see them in twos or I'll see them in threes and I'll be like, oh, look, there they are. Suddenly you see them as a six and the impact it has. It's so strange uh, and so wonderful. Well, okay. So you you mentioned they were involved. They were executive producers and nothing, I assume, happens haphazardly or without conversation between them. So if they are coming on to that set one at a time, how was it determined the order that they would come in and therefore who would be the first two together? Who would be the next ones? It, that just doesn't happen without conversation, I assume. That was just my decision. <laughs> and so I would say they were all in their dressing rooms and I decided who my team should go and pick up first. And they'd drive on the buggy from their dressing room down to the set. And then as soon as they were on, I would then radio for the next one to come and then the next one and the next one. So that it was like each one had five minutes with whoever, you know, it was five minutes apart each entrance. And I just took the decision of the order I wanted for whatever reasons I wanted. And uh, that was never discussed with the cast. I don't think they even knew the order. They would just, they had to wait in their dressing rooms until they were cold to come down and uh, be on the set. Well, I don't want to go one by one on the order, but why was David the first one who you wanted there? And what was in his silly backpack, and why is it not a plot point in the rest of the reunion? <laughs> his backpack, he always travels with that backpack, I think. So I think that was almost like the reunion was like he used to turn up to set with it too, I think he said to me. Um, the order was just the order. The order was the order. The order was just my decision of, of what I wanted. Um, why I wanted each one, I didn't give it a huge amount of thought, if I'm honest. Um yeah, I, 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 there's nothing too profound I can tell you about that about that reason. But I did. But you know, I always nothing is um, not thought through. But uh, yeah, that was why I, I I can't I can't give you a reason. There's nothing like there's. It's a really boring answer. It's just what I felt would be interesting to watch. And but I but genuinely, I could have changed it around. If somebody wasn't ready, I would have gone to the next one. If if I'd got a radio saying, "Oh, Courtney's not ready," I would have been like, "Well, send in the next one instead." I wasn't precious about the order in any way. So we know that they were involved as executive producers, and you and that you were, you know, you came to them and said, "We're going to do this trivia. We're going to recreate these moments." You know, but seeing you know Matt LeBlanc and Matthew Perry in Joey and Chandler's chairs, and then doing these iconic table read scenes, you know. Th those moments are all all wonderful in the reunion, and but I'm curious, was there something that they didn't want to do? And you don't have to name names, but what didn't make it that that you wanted to do? You know, Dan and I were talking about this. Not to interrupt you again, but you know, Dave, we were talking. He's like, he, how could you not, you know, ha see if David and Courtney still know the routine, right? Yeah, I did pitch that. I did pitch that. There was a couple of pitches that I mean, he's had. There was a reason he, he, they just couldn't remember it in time. Like they couldn't remember it. I don't think they wanted to dance in front of that studio. I understood it. I mean, like they were like, oh, don't make us dance in front of a crowd of 400 people. Like it's one thing doing it when you're playing Ross and, and uh, Monica. It's another thing when like everybody sat there like this, staring at them in an audience for you to have to like dance for a couple of minutes. So I think that like I didn't push it, but I did say, listen, would you ever consider doing the routine and both of them were like oh please don't make us do that they were like please don't make us do that they were like if you i think i could have pushed it but it's also one of those where you've got to pick like what you want to push and there were certain things i really really cared for like the table read or the quiz or whatever and actually like making him dance i could see why he that like both of them were like oh don't make us do that please and uh and so it, i also couldn't work out where it would have worked so like 
it wouldn't have worked on the documentary day. Like two people randomly dancing in an empty studio would have been weird. And also, even in that outdoor area, if they had done it, I just think, I don't know. I, I, I think they might have just looked a bit silly doing it. I'm not sure it would have landed, you know, 20 years later doing a dance in front of it. But it was definitely on my list of ideas that I pitched. So you've, you've nailed it there because, uh, yeah, that is one that I did pitch. But like I said, I think if I'd pushed it, they might have done it. But I didn't want to push it. I think also you've got a job as a director and the producer of a thing when it's like a creation that I've been sitting with. You know, there is a real trust between us where, you know, they are, you know, being vulnerable in front of a camera with just, you know, me and I'm asking questions and I'm, you know, I've given this great privilege of 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 being the, the showrunner of a show that means so much to them. Like the idea of a reunion at times in their life have felt like, why would we ever do that? And now to have pitched them an idea and got them there, you also have got to be careful that you're not just a nudge going, go on, do this. Or why won't you do that? Like, you've also got to know, like, actually, yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't have necessarily worked. Would it have been as great of the original? I don't know if it would have. And then suddenly you're, yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's just one of those that I didn't feel the need to push it. But I'm sorry to you two that I didn't. <laughs> well, okay, before we go any further, I kind of want to get the the technical logistics here. How much time was this filmed over? How much time did you actually have of these six in their lives? Um, I filmed it over two days with them. And then all the other stuff, the interviews with, you know, um, people all over the globe, Bright Kaufman Crane, some of the, you know, the David Beckhams to the Malalas. I shot that over, you know, I had a lot more time than I was ever supposed to because of the pandemic. So originally this got greenlit in January 2020. Uh, I pitched it in 2019. Greenlit 2020 January. And we were supposed to shoot 22nd of March uh, 2020. And then what, the world shut down 15th, 16th of March. I mean, the sets were built. The sets were built and they were in there uh, and they were ready to go. And so I shot, I, it meant I had a lot more time to shoot those interviews, to shoot Bright Corfman Crane, to shoot BTS. I didn't need to rush as much. Um, I'd shot a couple of them already before the pandemic. I'd shot David Beckham already. I'd shot BTS already. Um, and then I was like, let's just wait. Let's see. There's not, let's just see what happens over this next few months. Um, and then gradually I filmed stuff when it was safe to do so. And then I had two full days with them. Um, Day one, I did. Day one, I did the stuff without an audience. So table read, documentary, watching clips, all of that was day one. And day two was the quiz, the gaga, the the audience bit. So it was two separate days. It was like day just us, no one else on set, just getting what I could from them in a really beautiful, intimate way. And day two was like out in the open, audiences being there where it was safe to do so, and. You know, it was like day one was serious. Day two was fun. That's how I always said it to them. I was like, day one will be emotional. Day two will just have a blast. You know, you, you obviously mentioned the pandemic and, and this reunion was a long time coming, um, given all of the delays and, and the importance of ha of staging this on the exact soundstage where the show was filmed and recreating all of the sets. And that obviously adds so much, as do all of the other little details, right? The, the Friends music coming in and out of the different segments, et cetera. Like, you know, everything pointed back to Friends. But I also am curious, but with all of the delays, you know, seeing all of these pre-taped segments and everything else, how did the pandemic change what you originally planned? Firstly, I'm glad you noticed all the little stings and elements because we worked hard on that. So I appreciate that you noticed it all, Leslie. Um, Fundamentally, only one thing, only one thing changed 
fundamentally from what would have been shot March 22nd, 2020 to what was shot in April 2021. And the only thing that was changed was we moved the audience bit to outside. Originally, that was going to be, we were building out Studio 24 for day two. We were going to put 300 seats in the studio and turn that into almost like a variety show style feel around Central Perk in that actual stage. And it was David Schwimmer who said to me during the pandemic, he said, would you ever consider moving it to outside? And I was like, at first, my instinct, because I'm very specific when I work. People obviously won't see this because it's not a visual thing. But as you can see over here, this is my board of the Friends special, which is every single element is a different color of what it is. And I made this before we even shot the show. I'm very like, I know exactly what I'm going to shoot and I go and shoot it. And I almost tick off that card. So immediately when I was like, he was like, well, maybe we shoot it outdoors. I was like, that doesn't fit into my brain. That's not how I saw it. I was seeing it in sort of SNL 40, like when they built out that audience and that audience was really, and they, they had taken that SNL stage and they'd made it bigger somehow and more grand. Um, but then I started, you know, but then I sort of went for a walk around Warner Brothers and had just a quiet day on my own, actually, uh, which was empty because of the pandemic. And I sort of sat by that fountain um, and sort of thought, well, this could be quite cool if we could turn off this fountain because it's bloody loud. Um, and actually, I was thinking, because it's just a patch of grass there. And I was thinking, if we built sort of stadium seating and we light all those buildings, there's something quite beautiful about doing it where the titles are. And then I got excited about it. And then it was less like, oh, what a shame. And I was like, oh, this will be better. Um, and I think a lot of making shows during the pandemic has been that. I had the same experience on the Grammys. I made the Grammys this year for the first time. And at first I went into it thinking, oh my God, there's all these things I can't do. And then I was like, hold on, just think about what you can do. You've got a blank slate. I I can do it with artists watching each other. I can do it outdoors. I can do it with venue hosts giving out awards. And actually you start thinking there's a new lease of life in, in like there's no rules that have been written. So the outdoors was, it's a long-winded answer, I apologize. But the only thing that fundamentally changed was it took a lot longer because everything takes longer in the pandemic. You know, you, 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 just everything, you lose that shorthand. Um, and then the outdoors, uh, which I think added hugely to it. And I'm so glad that we moved it outdoors. And, and if I could go back in time and the pandemic had never happened, I would still choose to do it outdoors now. I thought it added a real different element to it. Well, this was something that when it was announced, was announced as being a big potential part of the HBO Max rollout. And then suddenly HBO Max had this situation where it was rolling out without a kind of marquee event. Was anybody at any point in any subtle or less than subtle way whispering in your ear, do you think you could do something? It wouldn't be exactly what you want, but could you do something so that we would have it for the launch? Look, I definitely think there was pressure from HBO Max in a way to do something with these friends characters in some way. But I think that they were incredibly respectful of like the creative that we had pitched. You know, I'd gone into HBO Max, I'd met with Kevin Riley and Sarah Aubrey, and I'd pitched a very, very specific show in October 2019. And that is literally the show that you watched the other night. Um, it's it, That is the show I pitched. And so the cast signed on to it because they really liked that vision for the show. Um, and so I think that HBO Max understood that whenever this came, it would be great. And so it would, they, they, they understood that it would have been a shame to rush something and make it, you know, I saw it one, I saw a one like question that Bob Greenblatt got during the pandemic when they said, well, you know, 
And he said, you know, this will never be a Zoom reunion. And I was really relieved to hear that because I was worried that the pressure would be there. But they, I've got to tell you, HBO Max have been an unbelievably great network to work with on this. Um, because you're, I, I would have thought that the pressure that they would put on me and the cast to, to deliver something for them earlier when they needed it would have been huge. But they didn't. They understood that they'd bought into what this show was going to be. And we had to wait until it was safe to do so. And they've been genuinely, and I'm not, I wouldn't say it otherwise, I'd just ignore the question, but they've been genuinely great partners on this and supportive all the way through. Yeah, um, And now having seen the reunion, now you see firsthand why this would have never worked over Zoom. And I mean, yes, we're doing this interview over Zoom, but you know, this is a far, obviously a far cry from from what you guys were able to accomplish. Well, and slightly cheaper as well. I don't know if there's actually the <laughs> Yeah, look, they were really patient and they accepted yeah. that, you know, they wanted this to happen. But two things. Firstly, no one during the pandemic, everyone, and I'm not just talking about HBO Max, every network executive, every broadcaster had to put safety first. And so therefore, actually, there is a responsibility of not rushing people back to work. You know what I mean? There is a responsibility of going, well, hold on a sec. We've got to make sure it's safe to do so. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing is they appreciated that these guys are going to be known as their characters for their whole lives. And they're very aware of it too. They are very aware that like, you know, Matt LeBlanc is not, he's under no illusions that he's not going to be known as Joey forever. He's going to do loads of other amazing things, but he's always going to be that. And he's proud of that. Like as he should be, it's amazing. Um, and so if they're going to revisit it and if they're going to do something as big as this, then actually it had to be right because you know, even if we had to wait another year, they were like, no, but we have signed up to this. This idea is what we signed up for. And when it's safe to do so, we'll do it. And they did at the first available opportunity when restaurants started opening at the top of this year. Um, and, you know, it felt a little bit safer for us to have an audience. And L.A. County gave permission for us to have that audience. Then it was like, cool, then we're up for it. We'll cancel everything and we'll be there. And, and that's what they were. So let's talk about the actual format. So you mentioned you've got the documentary with all of the cast members arriving on set and then all these, you know, the obviously the, the Corden interview, but then you have all these fun activities, right? So you've got the trivia game and, and the table reads. How much was the cast involved in that brainstorm? Obviously, you came to them with a number of things, but was there anything, you know, was there ever a point where someone just said, you know what, what? everyone really wants is to see these six people together and talking and reuniting just for like two hours. Was there a, a point where you kind of just considered something that was really slim and, and intimate to the point with this, with these? No, six? I pitched this to each of them individually in August, September of 2019. I went with a deck and that deck had, this is what this show is going to be. And page one was interview in front of a audience and, um, it was what it was. And I said, yep, we're going to do that. And then turn the page and it was documentary about six people coming back together after they haven't seen each other for 17 years and what that feels like and going back to the exact space. Next page, people from all over the globe saying how it affected their life. Bang. Celebrities talking about what their favorite, rather than just showing clips, why don't we get Malala and David Beckham to tell us what their favorite clip is and then show it. Um, cine footage that people hasn't seen we we digitized all old film reels that no one had ever seen before like matt breaking his shoulder but elements like that so no i pitched this and they went this sound and then variety moments on the back page it was variety moments and i was like you know the quiz or 
Gaga singing or, you know, those elements. Um, and that's what I pitched. That's what they were like. This sounds great. This sounds fun. Um, and that's what we were determined to make. There was, you know, I pitched new ideas along the way. I think the fashion show came to us a lot later. I think one of one of the producers suggested that as we were, Carly Siegel, who was working on the show, went to the Warner Brothers archive and they have all of the costumes. So she called me and she was like, this could be really cool. And I was like, yeah, we could get like Cindy Crawford to wear Ross's leather pants and just stuff like that. So like certain elements got added to it as we went, but but no, the, fundamentally the document that I could show you today from 2019 is what you saw on screen, which is great, really. I'm, I'm that's really fun that we were able to do that and everybody and they all bought into that vision. But no, no one really wanted to try and change what we had discussed. Did they pick the episodes that you did the table read, or were those you you no, selecting those? Us. Yeah, because I I like I said to you earlier, I plan everything quite specifically, so I knew that like. I wanted to do a Ross and Rachel section. And so therefore, actually it, was, it was Schwimmer's idea. He said, well, you should get us to read the Ross and Rachel scene. It'd be, that would be a really cool scene to read. And I was like, that's a great idea. So David was definitely, you know, offered loads of brilliant ideas throughout this process. Um, and, and just for the record, I'm not saying that like, oh, it was, like, there was a, it, they were involved in everything, but like, it was always about how do we make this great? And there were elements that I pitched to them. They, they were like, we don't think that's going to work. And they would have been, and they were right. You know, there was a couple of bits that I was like, what about this? And they're like, oh, I don't know, that feels a bit late nighty. And I was like, yeah, you're right. It does feel a bit late nighty. It's my background. Um, it's my day job. Give me a break. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, yeah, you know, there were elements like that. But then, you know, you, that's always the way with a brainstorm. You throw a load of ideas out and the right one ends up working in the end. Was there anything you actually attempted to do on the day where you got a couple minutes into it and just said, yeah, this this isn't this isn't doing what we wanted to. Let's move on to the next one on the checklist. Um, no, I don't think so. The day was planned really like specifically. I think it was like it was it, it was planned out bit by bit. I, it was such precious time I had with them that by the time I got them there, and also remember, I had an extra year prep that I wasn't supposed to have. So if I wasn't ready for it by then, then I was never going to be ready for it. Um, so, no, there wasn't anything. I shot extra stuff. I shot extra rounds of the quiz. And, you know, there were lots of questions that maybe got cut or there was a couple of scenes that they read that I didn't end up using. And, you know, but that's so, you know, there's lots of stuff like that. But no, like, wholesale elements that I just chopped out. No. Um, so that, of course, leads me to my my next question. So, Will there be at some point a Snyder cut of this Friends reunion? Because, yeah, I'm going to need to see that. Oh, I don't know. You know what? Everything I wanted to put in the show, I put in the show. That's the truth of it. Like, I feel like it's an hour 45. That's long enough. Um, I don't know if anybody, like, I feel like I, I, whenever you make things, you like, you're sat in an edit and it's two hours 10 and you're like, I can't cut any of this. It's all too good. How am I going to cut any of it? And then you cut it and you never look back. You never go, oh, I really miss that extra bit. Because actually, you know, what ends up in the film is the right thing to end up in the film. Um, so I don't know. I think there's a few fan stories that I couldn't fit in um, that maybe isn't as like, you know, glamorous or show busy, but there's some beautiful fan stories that that I got from some of those kids around the globe about how friends affected them. But I just had to choose two or three. You can't go that schmaltzy for more than four or five minutes. So so I had to cut some of them out. But um, maybe I'd put that online because it's nice that, you know, their stories get aired. Um, I mean, 
the Snyder Cut included a 45-minute Icelandic dirge of people singing by the ocean. I assure you, <laughs> Leslie would have watched another 45 minutes of, of schmaltz if that's all you'd wanted to I put in I would watch there. another 17 hours of schmaltz <laughs> with the Friends cast, do, playing trivia, reading scenes, just talking together. Like, this is my all-time favorite show. I, I will eat up anything I can, any kind of content. So that's that's why I'm saying, give me the Snyder Cut. <laughs> The Winston cut. I want the Winston cut. <laughs> yeah. So, well, the good thing is, because I had great partners and a great studio behind it, this really was the Winston cut. So like anything that you saw in that, there was nothing that I was asked to remove from anybody. They all were very happy with this cut and let me make the film I wanted to make. But did we do it? I mean, I'm interested. I'm not, you know, how was it for you as a fan watching the show? You know, did you feel like we did it justice? Because I felt a huge amount of pressure about people like yourself who where the show is so beloved for. And, you know, I've, I've been up at night worrying about people like you, Leslie, and not letting them down. So I haven't spoken to anybody that's seen it yet, apart from the cast and the creators. You're my first conversation with someone who's watched it. So how did well, we do? I mean, I, I'm biased. I, and I will admittedly say that at least as a reporter, I'm completely biased. I love this show. And, you know, it's so hard watching content, you know, these days. And and I also just hate myself for referring to it as content, but there's so much stuff out there that, you know, it connects in one way or another. And, and you're just trying to compete for attention and everything else. And for me, what I found while I was watching this was I didn't have my laptop open. I didn't look at my phone once. I didn't go to flip open Twitter. I didn't check the Dodger score. This had my undivided attention. I wasn't, you know, multitasking or doing laundry or any of this other stuff. But it, I basically sat there for an hour 45 with a big grin on my face. I wanted to hear every single word that every single person on this said. And I want all the outtakes. <laughs> I want so much more. It was just, I, I loved it. You know, I, you know, and my next question for you is, you know, this is a show that is obviously so, so beloved and so well covered. My question is, how much were you looking for, for these untold stories that people didn't know that Jen and Schwimmer had crushes on one another in season one? You know, how Matt LeBlanc hurt his shoulder. These are things that diehard Friends fans, including myself, didn't know. know. So how much were you looking for those moments and how did you find them? Oh, I was looking for them. I was 100% looking for them. Um, I've got to say again, the year helped. Like the extra year I got, it did help because it, it gave me, like I was rushing to make that film on the 22nd of March. I literally, that green light of Jack, from January 2019 to try and pull off that show with everything that we were filming and get it done by March 22nd, I was under a lot of strain that I wouldn't be able to get it done. And then when the world was put on pause, it allowed me to go, okay, I've just got to now make this film better than it would have been whenever it happens. And I watched all 236 episodes during lockdown um, because I went through and I was like, because I went through the fine tooth, I was like, would that scene work for a read through? No, there isn't enough X in there or there isn't enough jokes in there. So I really was able to do it. And also the other thing was I before before August 2019, I'd never really met any of the cast. They'd come on the Late Late Show and I'd said hello to them, but I didn't know any of them. But I had an extra year of going, hey, do you mind if we just do a Zoom call on Tuesday night? Is that all right if we just chat? And I would call them and I would chat to them about what they remembered and some memories. And then suddenly, and then you know, and then Matt LeBlanc would be like, oh, we always did a huddle. And I'd be like, oh, why did you do the huddles? Ah, oh, superstition. I was like, and you did it every show. And he'd be like, yeah, yeah, we did. Oh, actually, you know, the only night we didn't. Wow, I'd never thought of that. The only night we didn't was when I broke my shoulder. I was like, 
you broke your shoulder the night that you did. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And also just chatting to like David and, you know, David told me that story that you mentioned and then sort of having a little chat with Jen going, Jen, how, you know, is this true? Did you feel the same? And he was like, yeah, I did. You know, so I was able to really do a lot of research in that year because we were all sort of, well, for part of it, you know, at home on Zooms. And so I planned out a lot of those stories and, and, and how I could link them all together and then sort of worked backwards. Well, if I'm going to tell that story, then I want that table read. And, you know, I, I sort of really tried to string it together. I, I don't direct much anymore. I used to direct a lot in my 20s. And then I sort of sadly became a suit and then sort of just like started running shows and stuff. And you don't really have time to get in the weeds on it. And I, I, I a couple of years ago, I put the director's jacket back on and did when Corner met McCartney, which was his carpool, because I really didn't want anyone else to direct that. And I felt the same with this one. It was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to take this one. I, I don't want anyone else doing this because we've managed to get them back together. So I was able to really like dig deep and research it and try and find as much like great stuff as I could. There is one outtake that I would like to try and put out there that I didn't have time for. Here's one for you, Leslie. And it was, but it's a Bright Kaufman Crane story. And it's the Bright Kaufman Crane story of how the opening titles came to be. Um, and it came because an NBC executive saw the show and said the first 10 minutes was boring and they had to cut. It was just, it's just people, six people sitting around in a cafe talking. This isn't, this isn't good enough. And unless you change it, you're not going to make air. Um, and they weren't going to go on air because the executive, and I don't know who the executive was. They never mentioned that executive, but said it was just a boring beginning. So they decided to do like a fast, funky, like opening titles to REM's happy people, shiny, happy people. And they cut this, like just a highlights thing of the episode of them all doing silly faces and dancing around. And they gave it back to that network executive and the network executive looked at it again and went, you see. How much better is it now that you've intercut it and didn't realize the only thing that they'd changed was a title sequence? And so they tell that story really well. But again, in this show, I didn't have time for it. But maybe I'll speak to HBO Max and see if we can release some of those little stories. Um, yeah. So, so just to be clear, the opening song was originally R.E.M. and not the Rembrandts? This was before it had even This was before it became the Rembrandts. Yeah. This, okay. Well, this was before it was even on air. This was just like the pilot being watched. Um that was all this was. And so, yeah, the, but uh, it wouldn't have ever gone to air with REM, Shiny Happy People. It was just for the purposes of showing the network executives. Um, so I have that story. Uh, so like little things like that I found out, but but I couldn't put in. But, but everything else sort of made it into the show. Okay, so there's no way you didn't go to the Rembrandts. What were they doing instead? What do you mean? To have some participation here. <laughs> I didn't. And I'll tell you why, because I think that like the obvious friends reunion thing was a shiny studio floor with the Rembrandts playing and like people coming out and singing with them. And I was like, that was the reunion I sort of didn't want to make. Um, so nothing against the Rembrandts. I'm, they're amazing. I'm, but no, I never wanted that. I sort of felt like that wouldn't have been in the tone of the show that we were trying to make. That would have been in the more like shiny floor Saturday night network show. Do, do you know what I mean? Sure. Okay, and so the next of the obvious people slash things who didn't make it in, uh, what was Marcel's big request that kept Marcel from making an appearance? Or did Marcel just hear some of the things Schwimmer was saying and decided, nah? -uh? I think that we would have had a choice, either book Marcel or David Schwimmer. I don't, <laughs> think, I, I don't think I could have had both. It was one or the other. Of course, of course. And now I, I want to get to, you know, Lisa Kudrow, 
first of all, she grabbed a guitar, sang Smelly Cat, and then Lady Gaga comes out and they do a duet. Uh, so obviously that was something that you went to her in advance. How much did she have to rehearse? Did she remember the song? And did she did she understand that she was performing the theme song with with Lady Gaga and and what like what that moment was? Yeah, I mean, I went. Lisa's amazing. I don't know if you've ever interviewed or spent. I have. She's terrific. I mean, she's everything that you would want Lisa Kudrow to be. Um, so smart, so funny. Yeah, I said to Lisa, I'd love to do a music performance in there, and I sort of didn't want it to be like the theme song. Um, and uh, I said, look, you know, would you ever consider singing Smelly Cat? And she was like, yeah, it'd be fun. She's like, I think I can. I mean, she goes, I never really played it. I only know, I can't play the guitar. I just can do two chords. So we gave her a guitar and she practiced that morning. Um, and I gave her a list of like three or four names of people I thought would be really great to duet with. But Gaga was without question my number one. And she loved the idea of Gaga because Gaga, you know, I don't think she'd mind me saying she has some Phoebe spirit in her, right? You know, like there is synergy between Lisa Kudrow and Lady Gaga in some way. And so, yeah, so she did it. Um, we sat on a couch together that morning and Gaga belted out that smelly cat version. And we were all like, great. Um, and Dave Piendak, who works with me actually on the late, late show, he produces all the musical numbers that we do on the late, late show. I brought him in to produce that with Lady Gaga and Lisa. And he did a great job on it with the choir and everything else. So, um, yeah, it was just one of those things that came together. Lisa said yes in a, um, sorry, Lady Gaga said yes in a heartbeat. She was like, I would love to do that. Perform in Central Park with Lisa Kudrow. She's like, uh, yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, and it was one of those great moments in the show. And I also like it. It's almost like a, I see those moments almost like as a commercial break somehow. Like there's elements that like just give you a rest from the talking or the documentary element. I feel like there's moments in the quiz that are like that as well, or later on in the fashion show. It's almost like they're reset buttons, like they're the end of that act. And again, I'm definitely overthinking the show. But, you know, I do, you know, you do think about how you keep everyone's attention. I'm, I'm very aware. Listen, I'm in the late night show business at times, and I'm very aware about people's concentration spans and making sure we never stayed on this show in, in one place for more than five minutes. You know, we'd be outdoors and then bang, just as when you're getting like, okay, I've seen this now, bang, we'd hit you with a doc bit. And then you'd they'd go down a line and then bang, we'd hit you with a celebrity talking about their favorite friends moment. So I always wanted it to keep moving. Um, and I'm glad that, I'm glad that, that, you know, you like it and felt that we did and it kept yeah. your attention for that long. And, you know, you mentioned all of these details, right? You know, so you're obviously recreating the set with every paint, you know, every single detail and the props and, you know, you've, all of these callbacks, the intercut music, the new version of the opening theme song with the opening credits. That was terrific. Of all of that stuff, what posed the biggest logistical challenge? I, I actually think getting a date. I think I know that sounds so boring, but I'm going to be honest with you. It was trying to get six people's calendars aligned with a five week gap in studio 24 was probably the most difficult thing because stage 24, we had to have it for five. We were shooting for two days, but we had to have it for five weeks because it's three weeks of loading. It's, it's, it's four days, cameras lighting. It's two days shooting and it's another week loadout. And it's the busiest stage on Warner brothers lot. They have all, all of their sitcoms are filmed on there. So actually the logistics of moving a sitcom out to another stage and the, you know, the stop downs for that, and then getting that date aligned with the six of their date. I mean, that was, 
the first date was Seder night and I was like, I can't do it. Like we can't, I can't, my mother would kill me. There's no way I can shoot this on Saturday night. Yeah, I can't make it. And they were like, well, um, and then there was a date that was going to be like Grammys week. And I was like, I'm so sorry guys, but like, I can't do that. I cannot do, I can't, I've been planning the Grammys for a year. Like there's just no way it's my first Grammys. So just finding those dates and also David shoots a show in the UK intelligence. So, and Jennifer was on the morning show. Like it was a lot. But once we found those dates, that was it. Um, and there was no moving from those dates. Like, so I said, that was the biggest logistic channel challenge. One of the things that I was very particular about with John Schaffner, the production designer, and Greg Grande, the art director of the show, was I consistently insisted. I was like, these guys need to walk onto this set and it leads to literally smell the same. I was like, if the, if the bleachers have moved over. Let's get the old plans from 2004. If the bleachers for the audience have moved too much this way, we need to move them back. I was like, they need to move in. And the first thing they can't do is, oh, it used to be over here, actually. Oh, this this isn't as big as it used to be. It needs to take them back. And they have done 236 episodes on that stage. Well, actually, no, the first season wasn't on that stage. It was two seasons two to 10 were. But they they know that stage so intimately. They know their dressing room so intimately that we were very, very insistent. I was very, very insistent that everything was the same. Even we, there was a neon light, the friend's neon light that's above the audience. I don't know if you, you, you probably remember this, Leslie, from seeing it in pictures over the years, but like there was a neon light that always sat above the audience and no one could find it. Like no one could find it. They were like, we just don't know where it went. We can't find it. So we made them remake a neon light that it was exactly the same as the neon light above the audience. That, you and I watching at home would never know, but the cast would know. They would immediately see it wasn't there. And that might trigger them like not feeling like it, they were stepping back in time. So I was very, very specific about all of that and that being very, very exact. Um, yeah. So that was one of the things that I was like a bit. So, so was the beam a trick or was it an accident? Having the beam that was removed from the set that several of them noticed. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Well, the beam was a decision I took because it was in the original show. And so I decided to go with, I decided to go with the era that I thought was most memorable in each show. Because the other question that Greg Grande, the art director would ask me is he's like, well, do you want a hi-fi system or do you want the cassette player or do you want the gramophone? Like, cause each season they would change stuff up. Same with the, um, the loungers that Joey and uh, Charlie, they went by the time that Joey lived on his own. So I sort of, you know, where do you want the China dog? Do you want it on the balcony in the girls' apartment or do you want... So I, I sort of made calls with the team on like what would be the most sort of like memorable moments of that. Um, and, and the beam was just something that Jimmy Burroughs had in the original and he was very insistent on the beam. And whenever he would come back to direct an episode, people tell me that he would insist that the beam was there and the other directors would get rid of it. Um, and I just thought, go with what I don't want to have is them walking up and going, oh, the beam's not here. The beam's not here because that it's better to have something that was there than not have something, I thought. So that's why I went with it. And in the end, it gave me a lovely little moment with Lisa hiding behind it, which was that sort of sweet moment that I really needed in the edit anyway. So I'm glad I went with the beam. 
That's very cute. Um, I do want to talk about the guest stars. So you've got so many familiar faces that were featured in the reunion. Ross and Monica's parents, Janice, Joey's hand twin, who, uh, uh, you know, Thomas Lennon, that moment was really fun. The barbershop quartet, Mr. Heckles, you know, and then of course, Tom Selleck, who did you want, but couldn't get? And then of course, Gunther on Zoom, which, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I, we asked loads of people to come and be part of it, especially the supporting cast. Some people, the one thing that we had no flexibility with is the time or the date. So we were like, we are shooting on this date at this time. If you can make it, that'd be great. Um, and one of the problems with shooting in a pandemic is, A, people can't always get on flights or couldn't even get into America potentially, or they're in bubbles on other shows and other films, which is a significant thing. You know, we don't allow, you know, it's, it, especially back at the beginning of April, it was very strict. If you're on a drama, you know, Jennifer, as an example, had to get special permission to leave the morning show bubble to come to the Friends reunion bubble. So if you're a bit, you know, which is which is how we've kept the industry going, you know, like, you know, we've been Late Late Show has been in studio since July the 20th. We haven't had a positive test since then. We've been on air since July 20th. I'm proud of that. And it's because we've been testing three times a week and we've been strict about who can come in this building. You know, if my wife wanted to come and pick me up this afternoon, she wouldn't be allowed in the parking lot. And I and like we've been strict, but it's helped. We're still on air and everyone feels safe here. So a lot of people, you know, there's been talk in the press about like who isn't there and whatever. There was no there's no hard feelings on anybody. It's just some people either couldn't be there or or, you know, and we couldn't have everybody. I mean, there's a million guest stars on that show. So so um, the only one we made the exception for was was Gunther was James Michael Tyler. I, he couldn't make it. He couldn't fly in. But I was like, to not do it with Gunther, I think everyone goes, where the hell is Gunther? Um, so I was like, let's do it with Zoom with him because it, you know, it would be sad to not have him. I'm sure Friends is a massive part of his life. Whereas a lot of, you know, some some artists, they're more known for other things anyway than they are Friends. Um, and so, and I don't mean that disrespectfully in any way to, 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 to James Todd. I just mean that he's so synonymous with the show. I was like, we're going to make the exception. We'll have him on Zoom. So was there anyone else that... that because of the COVID precautions that, that you wanted, but it just didn't work out. Can you name any names? I'm not going to name any names if you don't mind, Leslie, only because I don't want it to be like they couldn't come or whatever. I'm happy with who we had on the show. I think we had, you know, we had the, you know, we had people I really wanted to be there and everybody was happy to be part of it. It was just, you know, the dates or the circumstances, some people just couldn't make it in or, you know, weren't able to fly all the way to LA for a 30 second cameo and, uh, and, and leave there bubbles and shooting stuff so yeah we got everybody you know that we hope to i think and have i sort of missed the various interviews where malala has talked about her love for friends because i've been concentrating on all the peace prize stuff um yeah that's what you see you, you missed the headlines daniel that's your problem you, you, you've got to look beyond you've got to look beyond changing the world for the better and women's rights and you've got to look to were they on a break that's what malala really cares about um so uh I read an I read an interview with her, or one of my team did. They read an interview and they said, "Have you seen this?" And they sent it to me, and it was an article about how uh, in Oxford she used to watch Friends every night with her best friend, and they used to stay up all night. And when I heard that, I was like, "We have to get Malala on this show." And actually, I've got to tell you, she was the easiest booking of all of them. We asked her team; they were like, "Yes, when?" And bless Malala, I interviewed her over Zoom because I couldn't obviously be in the room because when we filmed her, it was at the height of the pandemic. And she was in the UK. So my team in the UK, the Fullwell staff over there, um, filmed it for me. And I was on Zoom interviewing her. 
And I've got to say, she was so lovely. She was. She said it then. She goes, "I cannot thank you enough for putting me in the friends reunion. <laughs> this means the world to V and I, and uh, I'm so grateful that uh, to be part of it. It was. It was so sweet, so lovely. She's. She was amazing. And one of the things that the show was criticized for over the years was. Um, some lack of representation in many different ways. Was the international segments or were the international segments a way to sort of address that without necessarily needing to approach it from a point of of negativity? You know, why didn't you have more of dot, 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 or dot, dot, dot? No, I don't think so. I think it was, I think it was simply that you, you, you know, when I, like, doing the research for this show, you hear that it was the number one show in India. And then you hear it was the number one show for years in Ghana. And then you hear that it's still the number one show in like, and this one, I'm not sure, but like Russia or somewhere like that. I found out that it was still the number one show. I don't think it was Russia. It was somewhere like that. I can't remember exactly. So forgive me on the facts there, but you know what I'm saying? And I was like, that's insane. It's insane to me that a show that was written and performed in 1994, there is a 20 year old woman in Ghana who says it changed her life. And my nine year old niece in London can quote every line from the show and so therefore it came from that it didn't come from any like oh let's you know try and address the diversity issue by having people from all over the world saying they love it i didn't really think like that going into this show i i made it just with like full of love and heart and like how can i pay tribute to a show that i just think gave its fans something that they'll never forget gave them relationships and comfort and uh, friendship in a way, in a very, very weird way. And that was always where I went into this show from a place of rather than like the tabloidy point of view of, of judging something in that was made 27 years ago through 2021's eyes. You know, these moments in this reunion are so amazing. And I just cannot wait to see how the collective internet response to some of them. Um, I have to say one of the, my favorite moments in it, and I laughed out loud, was when LeBlanc came out during the fashion show wearing all of Chandler's clothes. And then not only just does he does he do that, but then he does lunges, right? Obviously, you know, a, a direct callback. But whose idea was that? I think it was me and my teams. I don't know if it was me. It might have been one of my producers. Uh, it was the group. Um it was a few days before I called him and I said, look, man, we're doing this fashion show without telling the other cast members. Is it, would you ever consider putting on all of China's clothes? Cause we were thinking like, who could we ask? And we were like, you know, who do we ask? We've already got Justin doing one and he wouldn't be able to get dressed quick enough into the thing. And like, we were looking at other guys and I was like, the funniest would be as a button at the end of it. If he does it himself. And Matt is so game and game and so like fun. And he immediately was like, yeah, sounds fun. Sure. And I was like, okay, that was an easy pitch. Um, and so he did it. And you can see from the guy's reactions, they had no idea where he, they hadn't noticed that he had sneaked out to go and put, as you can see Jennifer going, how did you do that? How did you do that? It's really funny. I don't have a camera on her when she says that annoyingly, you can hear it, but you don't see it. Cause I just, the cameras, I just couldn't get it. Um, but I looked for it in the edit to see if I could find her like looking shocked, but I didn't manage it. Uh, yeah, that was our idea, and we pitched to him, and he was up for it. And and as he was for everything, Matt, he's such a wonderful person. He's just so, like, in that special, he's just so joyful. He just loves it all. I think he really – I don't think he gave it as much thought as, like, going into it. He was just like, yeah, this will be fun. And then I think he was really moved by it. Uh, and there's a moment on the couch where he said, I didn't expect today 
I don't know. I didn't really, you know, I didn't think about being on the set and whatever. And that's, I think, his moment of like emotion. As much as Matt LeBlanc will show that sort of side of it, he sort of didn't know what to say at the end of it. And like Lisa rubs his shoulder. Um, yeah, I, I think it was it was a lovely day for them. I think I think I wanted them to have a really great experience. I didn't. I wanted them on that first day, especially that was without the audience, to just have a real moment together as a six of them to think about what they created and experience it and i said to all my camera team i was like don't get too close like let them you know a lot of it was on zoom lenses in a way so we could be a bit further back because i wanted them to not feel like they were on a tv show performing but i wanted them to just have an experience as a six that we could document so i was very careful about when i threw in questions and whatever i tried to let stuff flow and then i would throw in like a little anyone remember that and then i would step right back out again to sort of like hope that that conversation took off um, cause I wanted them to have a really lovely experience themselves. Um, which I hope they did. Yeah, I, it definitely seems like they did. Um, uh, one thing, you know, I do want to follow up on, you know, you mentioned the, the, the emotional moments, you know, with LeBlanc and there were a couple, you know, where people got emotional, like the first moment, uh, Jen Aniston walks onto the set that she immediately looks for, for the box of Kleenex. Right. And then there was a moment with Matthew Perry where he got very, very choked up. There's been a lot of speculation. I hate to even have to ask this, but there has been a lot of speculation about his health in recent years. How was he? Is he okay? Yeah, he was great. Um, he was great. I think, you know, people can sometimes just be a little bit unkind and I wish they weren't. Um, you know, he was great. I loved working with him. I think he's a brilliantly funny man. And, uh, I thought he had some great one-liners in the show. Um, and yeah, I felt just happy to and lucky to be in his presence and directing him on something like this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, wrapping up, the, you, you mentioned you having digitized so much of, of the footage and, and sifting through stuff that was unreleased. How much more stuff, how much more footage is there that we haven't seen? Well, I think we, d we dumped a lot of it in those credits at the end because we were so upset we couldn't fit it in. That Did you notice at the credits? Oh, of course. Yeah, of course you noticed. Sorry. I, I, I watched until the thing stopped. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that was, uh, we loved that. That was like Guy Harding, our editor, said to me halfway through, is that we're never going to finish. This stuff is beautiful. It's all gorgeous on these film lenses. No one's ever seen it. They were promos that got like scrapped and stuff. And so we put them all in at the credits. I mean, look, I never went to the warehouse um, but of course friends were shot on film and there were four cameras for every take. So you guy, guy and Carly used to go to the warehouse and it was just reels and reels and reels for miles and miles and miles. Um, and finding, it's like finding a needle in a haystack, finding the right scenes that we needed on the right days and the right takes. And, you know, I remember when we found Matt LeBlanc breaking his shoulder, we were all like popping champagne because we never thought we'd be able to find it. Um, so a lot of it, you know, uh, was brilliant research by the team. And again, if I'm honest, we were helped by that year's pause because we were able to, when it was safe to do so, to just send a couple of researchers and they just sat in that room, just pouring over old material, but then deciding we also had to take the risk because it costs every time you digitize it. So then we had to go, well, do we, do we take the risk on these reels and send them to be digitized? And then some of them, you get them back and it's like nothing there. So like, yeah, that was a real, real job. But I, I didn't get as involved in that. I had Guy Harding, who is the editor, but also is a producer on the show because he gets so involved in those elements of it. It's why I like to use Guy, because he helps me with all elements of post rather than just cutting. Um, and he's also a big Friends fan. So he was geeking out over all this old film footage that we managed to find. And I try to put it in there wherever I can. Like during that casting bit, 
where, where David Crane and Martin Corfman and Kevin Bright are talking about finding Matt LeBlanc, we then, you know, that's where we slip in unseen film footage of Matt LeBlanc just sat there in the pilot, you know, drinking his coffee. And so it's not going, hey, look, there's footage that no one's ever seen before, but you're seeing footage that no one's seen before. Same with the opening titles over Matthew Perry talking about the bond they have. I love the fact that you see those opening titles and someone calls cut and all the PAs run in with towels for the guy, for the gang getting out of the fountain. Little nuggets like that were really stuff. I didn't want to go, look at us. We found all this stuff you've never seen before. But actually all those subtle little moments and nods to the fans so that you could see stuff that never been sat- found before that was hours and hours and hours of searching through these reels to find those moments and then just like pop them in there and people like yourself would notice and and people like my mum never will. Like, that was nice. <laughs> it was nice. It looked good. And as a last question, it's directly asked whether or not they'll ever do another episode of Friends or a movie or even another reunion. And everyone says, no, this is it for reunions. And no, we wouldn't want to undo what the creators have done. Do you buy it? I do. I definitely do. Um, The the reason why I buy, I can't speak for another reunion. I can't speak for them getting back together in another 15 years to do this sort of show. Who knows? That I wouldn't rule, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't say that I wouldn't rule out because then that's a headline. But like they might decide to do another show together to celebrate the 40th anniversary. Who knows? That's nothing to do with me. Will they ever do another scripted episode from getting to know them as a nine? Because it's Bright Kaufman Crane plus the six. Absolutely, categorically, never. And I think their reasons for it are really great. And there's two reasons. The first is Martha always, Martha, Martha always says, this show is about when your friends are your family. And as soon as you have your own family, it's not about that anymore. It's about a different, it's a different show. It's a different show. And they don't want to make a different show. And we wouldn't want to see them making that different show. That's the first reason why it would never happen. The second reason why it would never happen is they all love the happy endings their characters got. They love the fact that, you know, Phoebe found happiness. Ross and Rachel ended up together. Joey went to, you know, find his dreams. They all had that. And Lisa says on the show, why would we want to unravel happy endings? Because a show, if everyone's happy together, that's not a show. The show is, well, where they got divorced and they're going through this. And one of the kids is giving, is bullying somebody at school. And suddenly they, Chandler and Joey don't get along anymore. And they've had a fight and the episodes about them, you know, it unravels happy endings that they so beautifully crafted and created. And their creation is so gorgeous in their 236 episodes. We as fans think we would want it. We wouldn't. We wouldn't. And that's why I was incredibly nervous. The, the worst I felt about this show, I'll be honest with you, the worst I felt about this show was the day. I don't know how I got onto this. I've just stumbled onto telling you something I, you didn't even ask me for. But the day that they all Instagrammed that great picture and said, we're back, it's happening. Do you remember when they when they Instagrammed that Rolling Stone cover and that photograph and they said they were doing it? I'd worked really hard for about three or four months, maybe longer, to pull this off and to get this there, probably from like August to January. And like got it over the finish line. And they tweeted that or Instagrammed it and I was so happy. And then that Friday night, and it was a Friday, I remember it because I was having Shabbos dinner with my wife and I was full of angst, which I never am. I'm quite a calm person. And I was like, everybody thinks this is a scripted show. Everybody thinks they're back doing another episode. And I've worked my ass off to get this to happen. And now everybody's just going to be disappointed. Everybody's going to be like, oh, my, this isn't what we wanted. We thought we were going to see Ross and Rachel. We don't. 
I was so devastated that night because we hadn't, I don't think, communicated right what it was. And I was full of panic. Um, and gradually over time, you know, I, I asked Warner Brothers that, that day to put out a statement saying, yeah, we're delighted for this unscripted show to come where Jennifer Aniston and David Trimmer <laughs> and Matthew Perry will be meeting up again and, you know, not say their character names. And that was very much like me going, what have we done? And, and actually, because of the year break and the trailer was able to come out and, and now I think people seeing it, they will recognise that actually, although you think you want a new episode of the show, you don't. It finished how it was supposed to finish. The finale gave us what we wanted to. And I hope that the six characters taking part in this show that we've created, paying tribute to something that was such a big part of all of our lives and somehow still is, is actually what we wanted, even if it isn't necessarily what we thought we wanted. Oh, extremely well said, Ben. Thank you so much for joining us on the show and congratulations on pulling this off. Um, it was incredible. I loved I every really second. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much to you both. Thanks for taking the time to chat. Friends, The Reunion is now streaming on HBO Max. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Dan, kind of a slow week uh, coming up. So you've got the final season of The Kaminsky Method on Netflix, which also has and brings Lucifer back for another round. Amazon has Panic. Paramount Plus returns Why Women Kill. And then you've got a number of unscripted summer series launching on broadcast, including Lego Masters, America's Got Talent, and American Ninja Warrior. Dan, what you got? Yeah, slightly slightly odd week. I, I guess the determination was made that Memorial Day weekend would be the chance for people who are vaccinated to get back together with family and have barbecues and maybe step away from their TVs for a few minutes, maybe. Um, so that would be a nice thing to <laughs> to believe. And also a lot of the stuff that I've been doing for THR has been watching stuff that are going to be premiering in the next couple weeks into June. So I have, for example, not watched Panic, uh, but I'm sure it is a TV show. And I uh, watched two episodes of the first season of When Women Kill or Why Women Kill or whatever it is. I did not watch any of it the second season, so that's a thing. I've watched, I believe, about three quarters of the final season of The Kaminsky Method. And, uh, you know, the the Chuck Lorre show has, it gets, I don't want to say a bad reputation, but I think that there is a reputation that follows through on a lot of Chuck Lorre shows that it's going to be lowbrow. And I think the first couple episodes of Kaminsky Method, which definitely have a lot of, oh, I'm old, I can't pee kind of humor, um, it, it may be steered into that. And I think also that there's always a kind of resentment when anything that people don't feel like is demographically aimed at them gets nominated for Emmys. And so there's some resentment of Kaminsky Method there. I, I think that Kaminsky Method has been in general a a fairly solid show. It's a show that I think is is wonderfully acted. Uh, no Alan Arkin this season, but lots and lots of Michael Douglas, a lot of Paul Reiser. Great showcase for Sarah Baker. Kathleen Turner is in this season a lot and has a really good arc. And she and Michael Douglas continue to have a great rapport that they've had going back to the 80s. So there are a lot of really good things in in this season. And I think a lot of good things in the show. It's It's not one of the best shows on TV, but I think it's a, a very good show. And I think it's one of those shows where if a favorite uncle, father, grandfather tells you that they love the Kaminsky method, you shouldn't make fun of them. It's a 
that's a good show. <laughs> I, I, I swear, I I like me some Kaminsky method. I don't love me some Kaminsky method, but that's okay. Sometimes you can just like things. Uh, you didn't mention it, but Fox is premiering the animated comedy Housebroken uh, at the beginning of next week, and it's another of those bento box animated shows, so it has some of the same visual style, albeit with animals, of Bob's Burgers or Great North, a show that people should check out if they didn't watch it the first season, all being on Hulu. And it's the latest in a fairly long series of what are your pets truly thinking? Uh, how do they process the world kind of shows? Uh, so, you know, it's truth about cats and dogs and other various shows of that ilk. It's TV shows like Animals and Bojack and Toucan Birdie. It's the occasional live action show like ABC's short lived Downward Dog. It has a ridiculously good vocal cast. So many of these shows do. So Lisa Kudrow, Will Forte, Sharon Horgan, Jason Manzukas, who's a voice in absolutely everything, Sam Richardson, who's a voice in absolutely everything, Tony Hale, who's a voice in absolutely everything. It really does seem as if there's this group of like seven people who provide voiceover animation or voiceover stuff for basically every animated show, and they may have squeezed out actual traditional voiceover actors, but they're all good. Um, and I've watched a couple of episodes of it, and I think it's a great idea. I think it's a great idea that occasionally lives up to its potential and sometimes is just kind of loud and chaotic and ha-ha-ha dogs like sniffing each other's butts, that kind of thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I laughed at the couple episodes I watched, so I can see how it could down the road become a genuinely good show. For now, it's a amusing show, and if you're a pet lover, pet owner, and you liked a couple of the other things that I mentioned earlier, you know, you might like this as well. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing because it does help move us up and down the various search engines and whatnot. Uh, we are always happy to chat with you guys on Twitter. Let us know what you like, what you didn't like, what you want to hear more of, etc., etc. And if you have questions for future mailbag segments, you can email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5 at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Have a great holiday, everybody. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. 
ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.